This is Delegate Julie Polakovich Carr, representing Rockville and Gaithersburg in Montgomery County. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are in full Mako Summer Conference prep mode. How you holding up over there? We're still remote. A lot of stuff going on out there in the world, but how are things at the Sanderson household? <laughs> you know, things are things are okay here. Um, I, I gotta say, I, I do miss like being around the office pre-conference with all the boxes and banners and promo stuff and all that kind of stuff. I, I miss that feeling. So I'm, I'm going to be in the office a little bit in part just to sort of feel it. Uh, but I, I, I gotta say like, this is, this maybe is a sign that I'm a little too much online, but last night on social media, I saw a video of a shark that was starting to walk out of the water. And mm. To be honest with you, like, you know, after two plus years of pandemic mentality and sort of like all these crazy weather things and I don't know, murder hornets and all the you know monkey pox now. And so like, honestly, walking sharks, like maybe this is it. Maybe I, I just like I want out of this timeline. This is maybe too much. Don't forget the the tragedy with the zebras, you know, oh, right. I, I, yeah, emotionally, I'm drained. I can't I can't go there with walking sharks now. So I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to bite, no pun intended, and find that video you're talking about. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Let's hope this, let's hope it's a non-story, right? I mean, geez. Too Maybe much. we'll find it. We, we might have to put it on Twitter for, for our <laughs> listeners, but I don't have the capacity for that. I do though, Michael, I do want to talk today. Let's talk about tax caps, limits on county property taxes and it's an interesting subject, and we'll get into why we want to go there. But but what do you think? I know this is right down your alley, probably. Yeah, it it is right. This will this will be a good reset for me, uh, a palate cleanser, because there's nothing I like better than like nuanced tax policy baloney. So so yeah, good topic. I think it's interesting, and like this kind of has been in the news lately, so it makes it timely. But you know, this is county government stuff. And, you know, for our listeners, this is kind of nerd friendly. So yeah, I think this is, this is, this is a good one to set up. Let's do it. It is a good topic. And this is, as you mentioned in the news, because of a high profile effort to create a tax cap in Baltimore city, a group was pitching a plan to slash the city's property tax rate. And the hope there, Michael, was to rebuild the city's population. So the idea is you cut the the property tax rate over six years down to 1.25%, and then you cap it there. And this group was trying to get enough signatures, Michael, to bring the proposal to voters in November. They needed 10,000 signatures. We found out that they fell short. So the proposal won't be before the voters in November, but it does seem like a good time to discuss this. What What is your first reaction to hearing about that proposal? Again, there is an idea behind it, which is, look, the, the we think the property tax rate's too high. We think that's why we've lost population. And the only way we're going to get them back and generate economic development and tourism is through cutting the property tax and incentivizing people to come back to the city. Yeah. So I, I think I think there's a lot of things that are interesting here. And one of them, like at the foundation of this is as a structure of government matter, t- 
to what extent do you count on decisions made by elected leaders, right? Uh, you know, the democratic republic concept that the that the the whole nation is built upon that you have your elected leaders make decisions on behalf of the populace as opposed to you do things by plebiscite or by referendum or by like those old school new england town halls where everybody in town gets to come to the meeting and you raise your hands and whatever has the most votes in a popular vote just gets to carry the day um, I think those questions are like interesting structure of government stuff. And like, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm as aggressive a naval gazer as anybody I know, I think. But I think what's also interesting here with this as a, a limit through the city charter is there are a number of quirky things here in Maryland and in Maryland law that I think they were sort of lying beneath the surface in this discussion. So I think it's worth, let's talk a little bit more about what was on the table and what was the vision for this proposal in Baltimore. But then I think there's a few more layers of the onion to get into about how these things work, how tax caps do work and could work in Maryland. Does that sound fair? Yeah, that's great. And, And to get into it a little bit more, I mean, number one, right off the bat, property tax revenue is the largest single source of revenue for Baltimore City and for Maryland's counties. And this proposal that was in question would have led to $455 million in revenue losses over six years. That's about $76 million a year, Michael. And for perspective, we've talked a lot about Kerwin, the blueprint for Maryland. $76 million is about what the city is going to be required to put forward for Kerwin in fiscal 24. So this is real money here that we're talking about. Right. And and when you say that's what the the city is expected to put in, what we're saying is that's supposed to be their increase, not not the total ticket for Kerwin, but they're supposed to be coming up with extra local source revenues for their share of this education plan. That's a big part of what's lying in the background of this entire debate about tax rates and local taxes and so forth. Definitely. Right. And so, as we mentioned before, I mean, the group pushing this initiative argued that Reducing the property tax rate incentivizes people to move to the city. Again, it brings businesses there, private investment. All of that would generate tax revenue. And the idea here would be, oh, well, over a period of time, we would get the revenue back because you'll have all this new investment. But Baltimore City's budget director said that they'd have to grow the population to over 900,000 people over the next six years to actually make this work. We know from the 2020 census, Michael, there are about 576,000 residents right now in Baltimore. So that jump isn't realistic. And you can imagine there will be a number of years here if this were to come to fruition, if it did get on the ballot and pass, where the city would be pinched uh, and have to, to to figure out which services they were going to cut because you're really strangling their revenue, their, their number one revenue source here by doing something like this. And I think it's a little bit disingenuous to say, oh, don't worry, it'll all work out in the wash. Well, when you look at what it actually would take and the amount of investment in people coming to the city that it would take, that's just not realistic in my mind. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this this may be the first of multiple put a pin moments in this conversation, because I mean, I think we want to get deep into a few things, but this may not be among them. But this this idea that lowering tax rates can be a boost to the activity that is no longer taxed as highly, and therefore the base will grow and that will offset the loss in revenues because of the, the tax base. Um that's an idea that, you know, is sort of born of a cocktail napkin and Arthur Laffer and income taxes and so forth. But 
it, it's a concept that needs to stand up to some rigor with arithmetic. And the, the notion that the only thing holding back fantastic development and growth in Baltimore City is its property tax rate um, might be more than can sort of pass simple muster. I'm not I'm not trying to suggest like this is a good idea or a bad idea. And I don't think our intention with today's podcast is to say this was a bad idea or this is a good idea or these laws are good or bad, but rather, you know, the arithmetic of this will all come out in the wash might not hold muster. And the argument that, well, we'll just do more with less. We'll have less local revenue, but it'll be fine. We can just get by. We'll economize and we'll scrimp and save and so forth. To some degree, you need to hire people for public functions. You need to pick up the trash right? and, and, a, and a laundry list of other things that residents of the city expect and deserve. Yeah, I agree. And I think we can get into a little later on when we get into this generally, what this would mean, what tax caps, revenue caps in general mean for local governments, but but let's jump into it, Michael, because we've, we've gone through sort of what was on the table in Baltimore. That proposal is off the table for now, but generally let's get into tax and revenue caps. And, and Michael, in the simplest terms, the goal of tax or revenue caps is to restrict the amount of money that a government can receive in revenue. And we hear a lot, oh, well, this will encourage frugal spending, this will encourage efficiency, do more with less. And so that's generally the argument for these, Michael. And we, we see them not only in Maryland, but this is an issue across the country where we see revenue and tax caps. And, and let's talk about what that means and what happens. Yeah. So I feel like there's a few different things that are worth getting into to sort of put all of this into not just a textbook con- context, like not, not just like talk about it as if we're in a public administration. 401 class, but but just like context in Maryland and context for Maryland actual local governments who very much rely on property taxes. So that's that's what I want to do with our time on the podcast is sort of talk about this from a Maryland point of view. Even though you know we have listeners from outside outside Maryland and that's terrific, but some of the inside baseball stuff for Maryland I think is relevant here. I like it. So where do you want to start with that Maryland context? How about First of all, this is a function of form of government and charter government in particular. Does that sound like a good stepping stone? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay. So let's let's talk about charter governments and and how it's different. You know, we have different forms of government in Maryland here for local governments. Let's get into how charter government is different. So, um, and without without beating this to death, Maryland is like a lot of states that um, we have local governments with different structures, even though we've got 24 counties, that includes the city of Baltimore as a county. Um, even though we've got 24 counties, we have different structures and different governance models, and that's all enabled by state law. Uh, the most, I think, sophisticated among the county structures is what we call charter government. So the local government adopts a document that works basically like the United States Constitution or like the Maryland state constitution, it ends up being the sort of top dog for local laws. So a local charter in the city of Baltimore, in a place like Anne Arundel County, where I live, in some smaller jurisdictions like Dorchester County, they've adopted charter government, which grants home rule, another sort of put a pin in it, but it lets that local government basically get first call for making local decisions rather than being beholden to the state legislature to grant them authority for small ball stuff. 
So you gain home rule by adopting a local charter, and then you have a document that sort of reigns supreme over your local laws and ordinances. It's only the charter government jurisdictions that would be able to contemplate something like Baltimore was considering a citizen-initiated and voter-approved tax cap that would bind the hands of their elected officials and their governing body. Right, right. And that's an important distinction. And, and right now, we have four jurisdictions with tax limits in their charter, Michael. Let's walk through those a little bit. And Montgomery County, I think, is an interesting one to talk about because we have seen over the years a number of different proposals. And back in 2020, there were two competing proposals on the ballot. So, Michael, let's let's talk about how the Montgomery County limit works now, because I think that's a pretty good illustration of, uh, you know, a, a, a tax cap and one that has been tinkered with over the years. And again, we've seen recently competing proposals to lift the cap and then also to strengthen the cap and make it even more stringent. So Montgomery County, our, our most populous jurisdiction, they they have the most convoluted and most complicated limit on taxes, in part because their county has a variety of sort of special use tax rates and special districts and so forth. So they end up using a sort of a complicated weighted average of a variety of these component taxes. It's the hardest to follow and the hardest to explain. But um, they've also been an exception for a long time that in their charter, what the voters had approved for a long time was a limit that could be overridden, but only by a unanimous vote of the county council. So, so that's a one-of-a-kind tax limit. The, e- the easier to understand ones are for other jurisdictions, uh, places like uh, Wicomico County, Talbot County, and Anne Arundel County all have what are effectively uh, revenue caps. And what that basically says is each year when the governing body sits down to pull together a budget and one of the things that funds that spending plan is revenues from property taxes, that there's a limit on what rate they may set. And it's a function of how much revenue does it bring in. So, you know, no more than a certain percent over last year's yield or no more than last year's yield directly or, or things of that nature. That's sort of what we would call a revenue cap. And it's basically the local officials may not exceed that number under the charter. Um, Prince George's County also has a separate limitation. Theirs is a rate cap as opposed to a revenue cap. And so that's a little bit different because if assessments are going up, then you can have a cap on the tax rate, but revenues might go up substantially if um, if people's assessments, the property values are going up. So that works a little bit differently. So we've got different flavors and stripes here in Maryland. As I understand it, the proposal in Baltimore was effectively a rate cap. They wanted to bring the rate down and then cap it at a certain level, um, but it was specific to the tax rate, which is uniform across Baltimore. They don't have those complicated machinations that exist in Montgomery. Right. And that's interesting because that does bring another twist to that that proposal from the city. And there would have been a big legal fight here because case law in Maryland strongly suggests that, you know, a tax cap cannot drop the rate. Um, it can only prevent the local government from exceeding a certain limitation, either a rate or a calculation. So there would have been a legal fight here. I don't know if that's exactly clear, Michael, or what you think about that. But in my mind, there's no doubt that if this would have passed, if this would have gotten to the ballot, there would have immediately been a legal fight over you know, how this could work or whether or not it violates case law. 
Yeah, I, I think that legal fight probably would have started as soon as the the petition had been certified as having an adequate number of signatures. Um, and what this gets to, this is a little bit technical, but I, I still find it at least interesting that some years ago, when Anne Arundel was going through the throes of what became the tax cap in Anne Arundel County, um, there was a debate about how that could be structured and written. And some of the advocates in Anne Arundel who wanted tax limits in that county had said, well, we want to force the rate down. We want to draw the rate down and write that right into the charter. The rate can be no more than X, Y, and Z and so forth. What happened is that was challenged legally in the Maryland courts, and the the courts basically ruled you have to look at state law, which state law grants the local governing body the exclusive right to set the tax rate. So this is kind of a weird exchange between the authority from the state government and the, the sort of independent authority of local governments through their own charters and through their local ordinances and resolutions and that sort of thing. But the Maryland courts found that because state law says it's the county council and executive Anne Arundel who have to set the tax rate, it can't be the voters by way of the wording of charter language. So that sounds like if, 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 that, if that case were held as direct precedent, it sounds to me like the proposal in Baltimore might have run afoul of that idea. If it specifically says, hey, the rate's at almost 225 today. For each of the next six years, we want the rate to be this, this level, then this level, then this level. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that the city charter can do that and override state law that says it's the mayor and city council who make that call year by year. So um, it would have been challenged, right? We can be sure of that. This would have been a legal challenge and a bit of a skirmish. And we would have had maybe till November to find out how it, how it needed to be worded and whether the, the, the petition and, and contents were, were valid legally. Right. So that would have been interesting. And that aside, I mean, let, let's keep going here. The next distinction, I think here, Maryland particularly, even for counties and for Baltimore City, there is a major twist in the laws governing county property taxes and local limitations, right? Because you can bust the limitations, Michael, for certain things, right? Let's let's talk about that. Yeah. So this is, I think, the most important element of why you need to have a Maryland context for this idea of locally imposed tax limits. And, and that is... Um, This is all about public education, and public education is special in one particular way. In Maryland politics and policy, you can't be around too long before hearing this argument that in the state constitution, the school children of Maryland are entitled to a thorough and efficient system of public education. Those are the words in our state constitution. Most things are just a discretionary matter. The the politicians and the political leaders in the state decide that we want to have state parks because that seems like a good idea and it's a good investment of funds and people support it. And in theory, you know, people will reelect a candidate because she supported state parks, right? That's how things become part of the budget and part of what the state and its counties provide to, to local citizens. Education is different. It's in the Constitution as a requirement. That means adequacy and that notion of it's thorough and efficient 
All those sorts of things are challengeable in court because it's an entitlement. It's in the Constitution that puts it at a higher tier, and it means a lot. Um, what that led to was some years ago, around 10 years ago, there was a, a dust up over a section of law that we call maintenance of effort. And this was basically the state law that governs the amount that each county needs to fund and then continue to fund for its public schools each year. Right? Another put in the pin, put a pin in it um, opportunity there because that's its own 45 minute conversation, maybe, right? Right, right, of course. So we know, Michael, that they're, they're, you, know, you can't just say, well, we don't have enough revenue, so we're just not going to put money into public schools. And, and I think we can understand that. So how this would have worked in Baltimore City if they would have actually adopted this charter limit, everything got worked out legally and it went into effect, Michael. I'm not sure it's clear you know, how that would have worked and what would have happened here. What do you think? Well, in the, the law that that got put on the books by the state in 2012 specifically said, even in a jurisdiction that has a tax cap imposed by its voters, that's meant to limit what the governing body can do with its property taxes, that that jurisdiction may exceed the tax cap in order to fulfill its education obligations. So um, even in a place like Wicomico County, where the voters said, we want this to be the way property taxes work, uh, the state has said, listen, you have an obligation for education. It's in our state constitution. The kids are entitled to an education and we do our share. You've got to do your share. I think the, the political theory there is basically it's not reasonable for a jurisdiction to just opt out and say, well, we just don't have the money because we have a tax cap. They said, no, education as a requirement comes first. Your preference for lower taxes doesn't take priority over that. Sorry. So your tax cap doesn't really prevail. So that's what state law says right now. A local jurisdiction can write a tax cap, but education comes first and you got to do your duty on that front. Um, this has gotten, like you mentioned before, you made a mention of the Kerwin Education Plan. And longtime Conduit Street podcast listeners know that we are very deep in the nuances of the Kerwin Commission and then the legislation and now the, the implementation and so forth of this big, ambitious blueprint for what we're going to do with public schools. But a big part of that plan is telling local jurisdictions, you need to step up and do your share of all these programs. And in most jurisdictions, that means they've got to do more for public education than they were doing today and that they might have been projected to be doing over the next, I don't know, it's like eight more years of rollout for the Kerwin plan. Right. So basically, the notion that Baltimore City could do a tax cap and then say, well, we just won't be able to afford Kerwin, our share of Kerwin, sorry, um, that's not how state law reads. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if all of this came together, in theory, because of the, the the law regarding maintenance of effort and the ability to go above an imposed tax cap for education, even if this all came together, it may have at the end of the day meant absolutely nothing. I I, I don't know. Like I think this gets. Uh, neither of us are lawyers, so we're we're a little out of our depth speculating here. But it's it's interesting and fun to speculate, right? So this, the, the provision to exceed a local tax cap has been used by a couple jurisdictions already. And, and, and basically, it was like, well, we're going to do our tax cap plus one cent. 
or plus a little bit here, and we're going to put all that new money into education. And that's pretty clearly what the state had intended to greenlight. So jurisdictions definitely can do that. Now, if if this ballot question had passed and Baltimore City had gone all the way to a much, much lower tax rate, and they end up with a, a, a city budget that's so upside down they had to do, well, we're going to have to fund the, I don't know, like the entire school budget will have to be on top of our tax limit. And we'll have to do, I, I don't know, you know, 38 cents or 54 cents above the tax cap in order to fund education at the state mandated levels. Like, how does that play out both legally and just like practically and politically? You know, people vote, people vote thinking that the tax cap's going to mean something and they think they're going to get a buck twenty-five, and now it's a dollar seventy-four or whatever. Um, I, I just don't know. I don't know how far that rabbit hole goes. But the right. state law definitely doesn't say you can just thumb your nose at the state requirements for education by adopting a local tax cap. And that being said, there's a limit on what Baltimore City or any jurisdiction can do this way. Yeah, and I think. That would be more than a legal argument here. I think it could be a big political one as well. It would shine a light on all of this stuff, including Kerwin and everything else, right? So again, whether or not this actually went into effect, I think this could, you know, maybe there's enough light shined on this now where this could come up uh, in the General Assembly. It could be in a bill, something about tax caps, revenue caps. Generally, we know we can already bust through them for education, but maybe this creates a bigger conversation, Michael. I guess it's possible. I, I mean, I, I think the reasonable way to look at tax caps in Maryland right now, I think, is the state is in the driver's seat and has effectively said, like, really drastic tax reductions, any county are basically off the table. That the state, I don't know, I've I've used this phrase a couple times. I don't know if I've used it on the podcast, but the state is looking to the counties. We are engines to fund the Kerwin plan. Uh, so the blueprint is a joint obligation of the state and the counties, but the county obligation, including Baltimore City, is basically ironclad. It's a it's a pretty lock solid mandate. Like it does, it, it's written right in there that if you don't fund enough. We'll take your share of the income tax and send it right to your schools rather than letting it come to your local jurisdiction for parks or public safety or whatever else you might have wanted to do. So, like, there's 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 a really tight state law that says you've got to do this. To me, that's sort of the big umbrella observation that that changes the game here a great deal. You can't really become a super low tax county in Maryland. You've got to fulfill education. After that you've got discretion. But education is number one here. Right. And so it is an interesting topic, uh, tax caps, revenue caps. You know, I think, I know, Michael, some states have decided in, in lieu of that, we'll just, we'll install some circuit breakers, right? And that's a, maybe a, a put a pin in it as well. These kind of programs cap a family's property tax liability if it's too high of a share of the family's income. So some states have gone that route. You know, there <laughs> are nuances here in Maryland, right? And I think that was a, a really good breakdown and the biggest takeaway being that yes you can install these these caps but Kerwin public schools always come first and there's always going to be a way to break through them in the name of education because you cannot renege on your obligation I wouldn't want to go without saying like you know Maryland does have features like that already in state law yes. to try and protect taxpayers and homeowners especially 
from being too aggressively hit by property taxes. So um, we've talked, I think, multiple times on the podcast about the, the homestead credit the idea of once you buy your owner-occupied home, like you know, the house that you own and live in, you and your family are in, um, there are limits on how much assessment increases can, can, uh, can draw into higher property tax bills. So effectively, you might be paying an artificially depressed tax bill because the state doesn't want to let you know, an elevation in the property value turn automatically into a much bigger tax bill. So that's mandated by the state. Almost every county is more generous than the state requires. So there's already a cushion built there. And then Maryland is one of the states that has a circuit breaker for lower income, uh, for lower income people, both property owners and renters to, to blunt the effect. Like if, if, property taxes are potentially overwhelming to you based on your income, you get a break on that already here. So, you know, we're already cushioning property taxes for for taxpayers in Maryland. The idea of a tax cap at a jurisdiction is just sort of a level beyond all of that. Right. And then, of course, we, you know, we also have other, you know, benefits for taxpayers like the constant yield, right? That's if the county is going to bring in more than it did the year before, you have to tell taxpayers and let them know, even if you're not touching the rates, if assessments go up, which aren't done by the counties, then you need to let your taxpayers know and they can come to a public hearing and you can explain why. So there are a number of protections. I agree. The homestead credit, the circuit breakers that we have for homeowners and renters, and then, of course, constant yield. There are a number of ways that the public is protected and kept informed about what's happening with their property tax bills at the local level. So, Michael, anything else that you want to get into while we're talking about property tax caps, revenue caps, anything else on your mind here? Well, there is, and I, I hope you can indulge me for uh, for a second because I, I never thought I would have this opportunity, but um, I actually get to make use of something I gathered while I was a teaching assistant in grad school. I, at the at the Maxwell School at Syracuse, I was a teaching assistant for a professor named John Yinger, and his principal research at that time was the idea of property tax rates being capitalized into value of real estate. I love it. So, oh my God! So I mean, so this this obviously could be. This is not even. You know, not even for the, I don't know, we've made the joke about having like an OnlyFans account or a Patreon account. We, we're not doing that. That was always just a joke, that sort of thing. But, you know, for the super hardcore listener, I'll, I'll, I'll try and distill this down. But give me a second, like the, the moment, moment we're in right now in the real estate market where interest rates seem to be rising over the last few months, right? The Fed is driving up rates and it looks like mortgage rates are going up. And if you're a homeowner... Uh, sometimes you'll you'll take a look at what your Zillow price is on your home or the homes around that sort of stuff. And things have been crazy for the last couple of years, in part driven by low interest rates. And now getting a mortgage is not like a 3% proposition. It might be a 5% proposition. And lo and behold, sales prices for homes are coming down as a result. Well, why is that? In practice, I think the reasonable expectation is most people think about buying a home in terms of borrowing. Most of us get a mortgage. Even corporations that want to you know, build a new facility are likely to float a bond or borrow money to build a new building or a new facility, right? If that's the case and the interest rate is basically your cost of borrowing, like if I'm thinking about buying a home, 
the most important thing on my mind is my monthly payment. I've, I've got it worked out, you know, the family budget, we sit around the kitchen table and we have our little spreadsheet and we think about whether we can afford the deluxe plan for the movie service or all those sorts of things, right? And mm-hmm. you have in mind, this is what we can afford as a monthly payment for the new home. Well, if the interest rate goes up, then the cost of the monthly payment for a given house, we just went up along with it. So mm-hmm. I can't afford as much house for the monthly payment that I think I can afford. So interest rates quickly turn into, they capitalize as part of the sale price for the capital, for the house itself. So the logic, take it one step further. Is it possible the same thing happens with property taxes? Like what Mm -hmm. about when you have a place like back in the late 70s and into the early 80s, you know, property assessments going up was seen as a really big deal. That's where some of these Maryland laws were born. Uh, California notoriously passed Proposition 13, which was a big limit on property tax rates at the local level. Uh, Massachusetts did uh, Prop 2.5, a a similar sort of thing a couple years later. So there was a window of time when governments were saying, hey, we're going to really cap property taxes and we're going to put limits on these. Um, Professor Yinger at Syracuse, he's still there and he's a published author. He's written books on this sort of thing, is dug deep into, does this turn into just a windfall to property owners? Does that end up meaning the properties just appreciate in value to offset the reduced tax burden of living in or owning or paying for your home? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, it's an interesting side effect. It's not quite the same argument as lower taxes are going to bring in tons of new development, and that's going to mean lots of new taxpayers, and we'll be able to pay for all the services we want on the backs of all those new people. There's a subsidiary sort of super nerd argument here that a lot of this stuff just turns into a wash anyway. It just becomes, it inures to the benefit or detriment of property owners. Now, in my mind, there's a difference, though, between interest rates and tax rates. I don't think these are like a, a completely parallel argument. Do you like if you're following me so far, do you feel like there's anything missing in the logic that paying taxes is the same thing as paying interest? No, I mean, if, if you're cutting property taxes, then inevitably you're going to get less back in services. Right. So, you know, you're going to have bad roads around your house. You're going to have bad schools. We know that people are willing to pay a premium to be in the area with the best elementary school. Right. So all of that is embedded here. And that is part of of what you buy with your home, I think. Right. Like you expect these kind of services to still be there regardless. And so if you're willing to I don't think you can conflate the two necessarily, because, again, if you're cutting your property taxes, then you're you're getting less back in services, and I think that's a detriment to the homeowner. Yeah, I, th- I think it it takes a leap of faith to to go so far as to assume that there's no benefit to the taxpayer of paying taxes. That that surely, I mean, no, no matter how um, I don't know, no matter how cynical you might be about functions of government and efficacy of bringing back value, surely you do benefit from road maintenance and trash pickup and public schools and libraries and services and like a laundry list of things that your local taxes are paying for. And even if you feel like you know, not every dollar is spent exactly the way that I would if I were in charge, uh, still, it's tough to say that paying taxes is adds no value to the prospect of being a homeowner in the way that you might argue paying extra extra interest 
adds no value. The home is still what it is. So yeah. I, I buy that as the big flaw in that capitalization idea. But I do find it academically interesting. And now I got to you know drop the name of my old professor, and I'm I'm happy to get a chance to do that once. Uh, I like that, and I think it's it's par for the course with this conversation and getting a little bit deeper. <laughs> it is an interesting concept. There's a flaw in that logic in my mind. I agree with you, but. I think, Michael, we should probably leave it there. Uh, I think we've gotten into this pretty deep. The bottom line is Maryland is different than other states. We do have some nuances here. And the big one is, again, public education, especially with Kerwin. We know that there's going to be a big, big obligation on the shoulders of counties. And even for the ones that do have these caps, they are able to bust through them in the name of public schools. And again, with so much going into education in the next few years to implement Kerwin, it seems like that's probably something that's going to have to happen in some jurisdictions. So I do find that interesting. But I, I also think, Michael, and tell me if, if you think I'm wrong, I feel like this conversation will be ongoing. This won't be the end of this proposal in Baltimore City, and we could see some copycat proposals elsewhere. We already know that there are counties that already are subject to these caps. In my mind, it restricts your ability to serve your residents. And you know, when you do something like this, Maybe the economy is a certain way right now, but then you have something like COVID hit, right? A pandemic happens and all of a sudden you need to spend a lot more money to protect your residents, whatever the case may be. Maybe people that you don't even know, people that don't live there anymore made this decision. Your hands are tied and you're in trouble. So I think it's really important for people to think about what they're doing when you do something like this, because again, you can always go and elect new representatives. You can go and decide and have input and services and what we should spend our money on. But when you do something like this, that really it's permanent, you really restrict your local governments from doing things in the future that are important to you. So I think it's really important people think about this before they vote for proposals like this in my mind. And again, we're not advocating for or against, but I think that's some good context as well. Uh, very much agreed. I like I, I like it when you get on a roll too. So you know I, I'm capable of these tangents, but uh, I, I I found no bones to pick with any of that. So good stuff. Well, I'll take it. I'll take it. So we will we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for today, for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.